Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, this is a special episode to discuss service and service levels, and what that means for organizations. And I'm sure if you're a CEO or a supply chain professional, service and service levels is something you think about and talk about quite regularly. And if you're a student of supply chains, then again, service and service levels will be something you'll be learning about. So we're going to talk about the elements of service strategies and supply chains and know why inventory management is so important in affecting service levels. We'll look at strategies to reduce inventories and remain resilient. And we'll talk about the ways in which people have managed service levels in the past and what has changed in the current situation and how we'll have to think about managing those service levels in future. So I hope that's of interest to you. So let's begin. Service levels are an important strategic choice for organizations attempting to meet the twin aims of efficiency and being effective. Being effective means getting the right service to the right place at the right time and at the right price in the right quantities. And being efficient, we look for ways to lower cost while remaining effective in meeting customer demand. So when we hear all the talk about having resilient supply chains, it doesn't mean that we ditch a focus on maintaining RI on cost and lowering cost. It means that we do that, but we're also at the same time looking at how to be effective in meeting customer demand. And that's what resilience is. Synchronicity, integration of systems, efficient processes, and supply chain flows are the keys to achieving these twin aims. For many organizations, particularly those in manufacturing and retailing, but in many other organizations too, service organizations, or in the supply of medicines and pharma, a large part of achieving the aims rests on managing inventories. How we look after those inventories while they're in our custody is a very important part of that process. Inventories have to be managed at the unit level, at the organizational level, and across the whole supply chain system. And managing relationships with partners becomes important. And the use of appropriate technologies to provide transparent information to all parties is essential. Many organizations attempt to achieve this by introducing enterprise-wide systems. And many of you listening out there will be familiar with those enterprise-wide systems, such as SAP. But in future, everyone in every organization will have to think about the ways in which they're looking at effective supply chains, but at the same time being efficient. And that may not mean the big fix enterprise-wide system that we've been used to. It might be thinking about different ways to do that. And we'll talk about that a little later. Now, when we think of service levels, of course, anybody that talks about a service level, we have to know what that service level is. So there have to be some objective set about what service levels an organization is prepared to provide. And those service levels need to be understood by partners in the supply chain, whether you're a buyer or a seller, whatever relationship you have in that chain, you need to understand the service levels and you need to work and develop systems that will measure the service levels that you've set. And when there's a variation in a service level, you need to know why it's occurring. So we would look at the variances from the objective that we've set for the service level 
and we'd have a measure, and then we'd have some means of putting that right, so a control in the system that would put it right, and we might have compensation agreements when service levels are not met. Often service levels are set in terms of time limits. So for example, if you expect delivery within 24 hours, and that service delivery time isn't met, then you'd expect some kind of compensation for not having those goods in that time slot. And the same if it's in healthcare, if you are booked in to a hospital and you are expecting an operation at a particular time on a particular day, then you'd expect the service level provided in line with the objectives the hospital or the health service provider had set. So if, for example, you went to accident and emergency and you were expected to be seen within four hours, then if that time was exceeded, you'd expect some kind of compensation or recompense for that service delivery failure if it, if it wasn't met. Of course, the problem with service level measures is that they can be gamed by people and organisations. For example, in a health service setting, if you are expected to be seen by a, a medical professional within that four-hour period, they could game the system by simply having somebody come and take your name and temperature within four hours, and they've met the target of the service level. So we have to be careful when we talk about service levels as to what that service level is, what it means, and we need to understand in any system when a service level is appropriate or not appropriate. One of the most common service level measures in many organisations, in supply chains of course, is having enough stock to meet demand when it's required. And that's often what many supply chain professionals consider to be the service level when they're talking about that topic. They're looking at inventories and they're saying, have we got enough inventory to meet this particular customer demand? If demand is volatile, of course, that is likely to prevent the service level from being achieved. And it's difficult to predict, you might say, demand, but it, in a sense, it's easier than it ever was right now because you have all kinds of systems that can detect the likely customer demand in any period, even in volatile times, we can do that. So service levels are tied in many organizations to performance metrics because if they set objectives, they need ways to measure whether they're meeting those objectives on time. When we think of inventory, we want to keep inventory as low as possible, but at the same time, we don't want to miss any customer demand. We want to be able to fulfill orders, and so we need to make sure we've got sufficient stock to do that while keeping stock low. And thereby hangs a tale that everybody in supply chain has been grappling with for many, many years, and that is to balance that trade-off. So meet demand, but have low stock. And one way to achieve meet demand, have low stock, is to have suppliers who are reliable in having capability to deliver inventory fast. So fast supply is often part of a, a network system operation. It's not necessarily on one organization. It's the system that must respond. And this is, of course, why choosing your partners in the supply network 
is critical. You need to identify those organizations that match with your need. And you need to build relationships and you need to both understand the needs of each other so that you can achieve the objectives. Over time, supply chain professionals have used a variety of tools and techniques to manage trade-offs from the simplest of ABC analysis, which is based around Pareto's concept, managing A category, B category, C category stocks, the 80-20 rule, which I'm sure many will be familiar with. But essentially, if you manage 80% of the value, which is normally the 20% of your stock, A items, then that's the critical point of managing inventory. And if you look at B items, they represent just 10% of items by value and C items the same. Other techniques have included economic order quantities and making sure that you can manage those. But it's much easier to manage an economic order quantity today. You don't have to work on weighted averages, which is how that system was originally intended. So you'd look at a period over, say, four weeks and you'd take what the average stock holding was over that period of four weeks by getting a midpoint in the four weeks at the end of week two and working out what the average is. But you can work out economic order quantities and averages much easier today on a daily, hourly even basis. So you can get the, the numbers quite easily without having to do the manual calculations. Those things were managed on calculators and spreadsheets at one time and now we've just got real-time systems that give us the numbers. And just in time, of course, was an important tool to manage inventory and to manage that trade-off, as of course were other techniques like materials resource planning, distribution resource planning, collaborative resource planning, and enterprise resource planning with the use of those enterprise systems. But they were mainly financial systems, in a sense, those uh, SAP systems and so on, to simply manage the whole organization, but to look at the stock levels from an accounting point of view quite often. Now, if we think about improving service, there are a number of ways in which organizations decide to do that. They can improve time, maybe to get things to the market faster, to deliver goods faster, to produce goods faster, to meet demand when it's necessary and required through innovations and through supply chain system designs and through technology. So it can be, service can be improved through physical movement times being improved. It can be improved by digital transformation. So the customer has information on what's happening and there's visibility to see where goods are at any point in time. It can be improved through having fulfillment flexibility and particular transport configurations and arrangements in place, and simply by being responsive. Responsiveness is the key thing that people want or organizations want when they order goods. So shorter cycle times and shorter lead times will all improve that responsiveness. And all those things are likely to lead to improved sales and to market penetration or to acquire more customers. It's also a way through service improvements we think service improvements cost but in a way that's old thinking because nowadays we can do lots of service improvements without incurring huge cost 
it will require some investment. So when we think about having the right software so that we can do these things, then yes, that requires investment. And it's investment in time, training, and everybody understanding how they can improve service without necessarily generating lots of cost. Improved service, of course, can lower risk. If you improve cycle times, then you can lower risk because it means that you're not holding the inventory. You're moving that inventory through the system quickly. It's got less time to be damaged, to become obsolete or delayed or invisible in the system. That you can't track the inventory because the inventory will only be in your system for a short time. And the shorter you can have it in the system, the better because essentially you want the goods to move seamlessly and quickly to the customer so that the billing cycle can occur and you want the cash from that to come in faster so you can improve working capital times cycles automated warehouses are one of the reasons why service levels have improved significantly over the past few years if you think about an automated warehouse with tracking technologies on the goods We can simply move goods through that warehouse. It can be scanned, packaged, without any human intervention. And it can be moved between trucks and scheduled for delivery. So we're able to keep good control of the system that way. Keeping track of numbers once they get large, of course, if you've got, say, 2,000 suppliers and you have, say, 15,000 SKUs that you need to manage, stock keeping units, then automated warehousing is a really good way of keeping control with the tracking technology, complicated delivery schedules there might be, and to make the the whole process efficient. And if you make that efficient from the inventory management side of the supply chain, then the customer service levels improve because it means that those goods are going to be on time and complete when they get to the customer. Now, as we know, often in supply chains, something will go astray at some time, and we have to be prepared to be able to intervene to put those matters right. And so there is still need for talented people to intervene effectively in warehouse settings. And that goes even for the automated warehouse. You need people who are smart enough to see what's going on using the systems that are available to them to give the visibility and to give transparency. I think if we take a look at what the big grocery retailers have done in the past two years while the pandemic was on, they've had to deal with spikes in demand and volatility in supply chains, which are unprecedented. So they've had to change the way they do things. Where they used to think about just optimizing stock levels through store and serving customers better, they've had to deal with those demand spikes, those bullwhip effects, almost on a daily basis. As things changed, sometimes overnight, warehouse and distribution operations had to switch the way in which they work. So flexibility and agility has been one of the drivers in those organizations to be responsive. They've had to be more responsive in what they've actually done. 
And you think about home deliveries when we think about improving service level to customers. Lots of those large retailers also switched to thinking about the store operations as the primary activity to then thinking about home delivery as a primary activity. So where they might have had, say, 500,000 slots prior to the pandemic for home deliveries, that suddenly rose, particularly in the case of a UK retailer, Tesco, to about 13 or 14 million deliveries a week, which were being offered to customers. Now, that's a, a change in scale that's certainly unprecedented. And they did that very, very quickly. They got to that level, not painlessly, but quickly. And it changed the way people were operating. And they've also had to use artificial intelligence for the modeling to predict what's going to happen. They've been much better, I think, at predicting what's going to be required. Their algorithms have had to change to work out what the iterations are, the best um, optimizations, I suppose. But optimization is, is quite difficult. And it's also managing in these automated warehouses, where if we return to that for a second, in automated warehouses, they're able to mar manage the space inside the warehouse better. Because if you've got artificial intelligence and robots moving goods around, they can work out where the availability for the space is and put stuff and remember where it is to find again. And using AI to drive warehouse operations and logistics, you can also reduce CO2 emissions both inside the warehouse and in the movements of those goods, which means less fuel consumption. I mean, I think some of those big trucks, they only do about eight miles to the, to the gallon. So anything you can save on a delivery is going to be big saving if you multiply it across a range of goods, if you can optimize delivery. The one thing you can be certain about in supply chains is it's going to be some kind of disruption at some time that you're not prepared for in some way. So you have to be prepared for every eventuality. And we've had all sorts of external disruptors over the past 20 years, whether it be the dot-com bubble, the burst, whether it was 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, technology as it changed over that time, the global financial crisis back in 2008, the volcano eruptions in 2010, the tsunami in Sri Lanka and other places in the early 2000s, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011, Brexit of course, 2016 vote and the aftermath of that, and then various trade wars such as that between the United States and China, but there's many examples where that's happened. And of course, COVID, which is the biggest yet, but we've got another one on horizon with uh, Russia and Ukraine causing lots of disruption and potentially more disruption in supply chains as we move forward. And at the same time that all this has been going on, there's been changes to the way we work with the technology. There's been more globalization since 2000, but we've had massive rise in e-commerce and the way that impacts everybody's configurations of the supply chains, how long they should be, how short they should be, time involved, cloud computing, 
and of course the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning and the impact that that's having. And I suppose now we're returning to what we might call globalization. So instead of being global, we're starting to think about near shore again and shorter supply chains. So we're beginning to reconfigure the way in which supply chains work to reduce that risk. When we think of our old ways of planning, we had lots of static assumptions built into those ways of thinking and doing things. And we didn't plan for the ultra-dynamic supply chains that we face in current times, where we need new ways of thinking. And we have to keep up with what's happening, both in the macro environment, in the technology itself, and how that's changing the way we can work. And perhaps even the move since COVID were more and more people, particularly in analyst roles and in office-based roles, might work from home, networked into systems. They may not need office space in the same way that they did in the past. Although I think it's always important, especially if you're dealing in physical goods, to be sometimes in a warehouse or on the road or with the customer so that you can see on the ground what's going on. I suppose if we think about the way those balances are changing, when I said before that cost is important, yes it is, but we're no longer solely focused on cost minimization. We're thinking about value and how we can create value for the customer. We're also thinking about our design processes and the way we configure supply chains quite differently. No longer are we locked in to a every five years we'll change it way of thinking but we're much more likely to be continuously reflecting and reviewing the processes and the arrangements that we have right down to the nth degree to see whether those arrangements need to be tweaked somehow. And we'll tweak on the go. We'll change things as we move. We're not solely focused on optimization. That's not the big driver. But we are focused optimizing through the use of technologies such as AI is helping us more to do that, and so is the machine learning process. Although, of course, we don't want to become part of a Robert Harris novel, The Fear Index. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. And we're much more, I suppose, in supply chains, aware of the fact that we're no longer in a silo and we're no longer underground, because the one thing that's happened during the pandemic is that supply chains are now integrating with the rest of the organization and the rest of the organization is beginning to realize if they didn't before how important supply chains are to making the whole organization tick without that supply chain there are no customers there are no products and there are no services Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Chain Reaction about service, service levels, and taking a look at the way things have changed. And certainly during the pandemic and in the post-pandemic world, some things we need to think about. So I'll see you next time. But just before I go, I want to tell you about a couple of episodes coming your way. The next one is about reverse supply chains, and that should be really quite a useful episode for lots of people because coping with returns is one of the difficulties that 
supply chain managers and professionals in the digital age with e-commerce and more sales going via the web, uh, that's certainly changing the way we think about managing goods coming back to us. And the important thing is to turn those goods around so that we can have a saleable product back out on the shelves fairly quickly. And we have a special guest, Dr. Regina Fry, who's an associate professor at Southampton University Business School, who will tell us a little bit more about uh, reverse logistics. Most retailers also really put the focus on providing great customer service. So they want you to be happy. They want you to come back to them for further business. And then we have another really interesting episode hot on the heels of that one, looking at resilient supply chains in healthcare. And that's very topical when we think about managing the vaccine processes and managing that cold chain to be effective in fighting the virus. And on that episode, we have a special guest, Professor Wendy Phillips from Bristol Business School. In terms of redistributed manufacturing, the the emphasis there is that the production's localised, so it shouldn't really have to uh, be impacted so much by uh, healthcare nationalism. And then in a couple of weeks' time, after that, we have a special edition on supply chain careers, roles, and courses to get the skills necessary to work in supply chains. So I hope you'll join me for all of those episodes. And if you know someone who's interested in any or all of those, then pass the details on. Let them share the podcast. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.